Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us read verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. The Word of God reads, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. Let us consider how, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together that for a habit to form, you need a cue, then a craving, or a crave, then an action that brings a reward. When, when you get into that cycle, you form a habit. Many years ago, 20, 2017, the company I worked for opened a position that I could work from the house. And it's awesome. I've been working out of the house for those years. And I discovered that when things became tense at work, a meeting, a phone call, or an email, I would stop what I was doing, go to the fridge, get something sweet, and go back to the desk. I didn't know that. But one day I caught myself. And when I tried to break that habit, and thankfully I think I broke it, it was really painful because I would see the problem and my first gut reaction was to stand up, go to the, pre the fridge, get a piece of chocolate, take it, and then go back because my brain was looking for some relief, some release, some dopamine that you release when you eat to try to calm down. That's the way habits form. Somebody has said that it takes 21 days to create a new habit, and 90 days, three months, to make it part of your life. Remember being an adolescent, I heard somebody say in Sunday school, you, make, you do an act or do something, and you can create a habit. If you work on the habit, you create a routine. And if you work on the routine, you create a lifestyle. So there are habits. There are good habits. There are bad. It is a bad habit to simply disengage from being focused and consistent on the habit of gathering together with God's people to worship. And the writer of Hebrews says, do not do it. It is a bad habit. It is the habit of some. Is church attendance an obligation for the Christian? <laughs> it is an imperative stemming from an indicative. You've heard me say that many times. 
It is a commandment to believers that comes from the great reality of the gospel. And I'm not going to go into details in chapter 10, but that commandment comes in chapter 10 of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews has said several things about the gospel. In the first 10 verses, he says Jesus is, is a, offered a better sacrifice than the sacrifice in the Old Covenant. Why? Because the sacrifice of Jesus removes sin permanently. Not like the Old Covenant that you had to come and come again and come again. No, Jesus' offer of a sacrifice is better because his was once and for all and dealt with sin forever. Jesus is a better priest than the Old Covenant priests. Why? Because his work as a priest was definitive and complete. The priests in the Old Testament were always working, always working, day after day, season after season. He says, Jesus, when he finished his work as a priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was done. It is finished. So he is a better priest. That's what verses 11 through 14 say. Jesus is a better offering. Because with his offering, he once and forever completely sanctified the redeemed. Yes, we're in the process of being sanctified. But we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for God through Christ. And Jesus established a better covenant because the new covenant is immutable, remains forever, and is not going to be replaced by anything else. That is the context of, therefore, do not forsake your gathering of yourselves together as it is a bad habit of some. There's a presumption in the text. And the presumption is that Paul... I believe it was Paul, but if you don't, it's okay. Whomever wrote Hebrews had in mind, and this is my assumption, because when you read Hebrews, it is the product, it is the work of a scholar in Old Testament theology and religion and customs and law. This was a scribe of scribes. That's why I think it was Paul. But if you don't think it was Paul, it's okay. I believe the author of Hebrews had in mind the solemn assemblies of the Old Testament. And since he was a Jew, he also had in mind the gathering that Jews had been doing for four centuries at this point, give or take, in synagogues, Sabbath after Sabbath. Even Jesus, Luke 4 says, he came to the synagogue on the Sabbath as it was his custom, because it was a custom of every Jew. These solemn assemblies were what? They were called to meet with God and to entreat God. There's an example in the book of Joel when Joel says to the people, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. It was a gathering to entreat, to supplicate, to plead with, to beseech, to pray to God. It was a meeting with God. Worship, confession, 
repentance, offerings, sacrifices were present in those holy assemblies that were called in Israel for worship. But in all of those elements in the Old Testament that were types of the great sacrifice of Christ was this celebration of redemption. Because you gather with a sacrifice to be reminded of the forgiveness of sins through the blood of a lamb. And one day that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would come. But since they didn't have that yet, they would gather with their sacrifices to offer their expiating offering to be reminded of the forgiveness of sins to celebrate redemption. Micah 4.2 offers an example of that. Micah speaking of future glory, new heavens and new earth, at the restoration of all things. Micah 4.2 says, many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. Did that happen in the days of Jesus? Yes. Did that happen in the days post-Jesus? Yes. Is that happening today as we are preaching of a new covenant and of the gospel through all the nations? Yes. But one day, gloriously, when the earth is filled with the knowledge of God, when we dwell in righteousness, that will be the case. It will be a celebration of redemption. So what is the purpose then of the exhortation? The exhortation is, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, verse 23, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds. That is the context of the commandment. The context of the commandment is the gospel of redemption, the calling to meet God, the exhortation to hold our confession, and the exhortation to stir up one another to love and to good deeds as that day approaches. So there's a call to let us draw near to God in assurance, there is a call to persevere in hope, but I'm going to skip those two because that's not my subject. My subject is, <laughs> let us gather together and not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Being intentional about our gathering. Why do I say being intentional? Because the verb is a verb that means stay focused. Put this in your mind. Make a priority about getting yourself with your brethren, meeting with one another, and stirring up one another to love and to good works. It's interesting that the verb also has this provoking, stirring up. We get the word paroxysm from the verb used here. A paroxysm is a sudden attack or a sudden reaction. It's a shaking. It, it, the imagery is like if the text were saying, you, you grab one another by their lapel and you shake them. Shake them. Stir them up to love and do good works. That is literally 
what the commandment is saying. And what is the means of the commandment? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as it is the habit of some. And this may sound strange to you. This may sound heretical. But gathering ourselves together, having the good habit of gathering ourselves together, is an evidence of grace. Remember, this is an imperative, a commandment, an order, couched in the indicative, in the reality of Christ's complete work as a redeemer, as a priest, as an offering, and as an offerer. In that reality that is already true of us, through grace or by grace, through faith, here comes the commandment. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Forsaking the gathering of ourselves together may well be the evidence of the lack of grace. I know it sounds legalistic, but the text says, don't do it. It's a bad habit that some have already developed. We are gregarious beings. We have a pack. Everyone here has a pack. Sounds dogmatic. Whether you, by age, your pack is your, still your family. That little nuclei of your family, that's your pack. And the pack starts to expand as you go to school, gets a little bigger as you go into extracurricular activities and you start practicing sports or learning some instrument of music. It, it gets a little larger as you walk into college, gets a little larger as you start working, and you may have even multiple packs. We all have at least one pack or more than one. Who is in our pack? Who is in your pack? Colleagues, co-workers, fellow students. Is your pack comprised mainly of worldlings or saints? People you hang out the most. And I'm not necessarily saying time. There was a time in my life that I started working around 6.30 in the morning, came back home around 7 or 8 o'clock at night, so obviously the bulk of my day was spent in the office. Not talking about necessarily time. There are providential circumstances in life that may drive you to stay a lot longer at a place with people that are not necessarily the saints. But at the end of the day, who's in your pack? Believers? Saints? Or people from the world? The command is clear. Do not neglect gathering with the saints. Walter Riggins, in his commentary on Hebrews, writes, Rabbi Hillel, oh, that's great, you have the quote there, lived about the same time as Jesus. In a tractate of the Talmud devoted to ethical insights and principles, he wrote, Do not set yourself apart from the community. And Regan's comments, his point was that no one can assume that he can make it through life without the support and corrections of the community. 
it is very possible, I'm not being dogmatic because it's not in the text, but it is very possible that just as the writer of Hebrews had in mind the solemn assemblies of the Old Testament, that being a scribe and a Pharisee and a rabbi himself who had converted to Christianity, that he was also very aware of what Rabbi Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus and of himself, had written about, do not set yourself apart from the community. And I'll say something that may bother, perhaps not nowadays, but maybe 15, 20 years ago, it would have bothered a lot of people because somebody that Christians normally do not like said it, but it is true. Guys, it takes a village. It does take a village. God didn't make us individualistic. Oh, it's about me and myself and my circumstances. We were not made to live in isolation. We were not. And yes, it does take a village to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. It does take a village to help our children learn the gospel. Oh, it's the responsibility of fathers. I was telling that to my children this week. You cannot relinquish the reality that fathers, with the suitable aid of mothers, you raise your children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. But you don't, that, you don't do that alone, home alone. It does take a village. And the caveat of the commandment is that it is the habit of some not to gather. And we know that. We know that even in our small congregation of Cornerstone Bible Church, that some people that we know, that we have known for years, that are even associated with our church as members, do not have the habit of being gathered with the saints on the Lord's Day. They do have the bad habit of not gathering. In the context, perhaps some were afraid of doing it in fear of persecution. That's what some people say. In China, you don't have too many issues identifying who's a true believer and who's not. Because they know every time they go to church, could be the last time they are alive or free. They can be arrayed from the government and the church is gone. And all the people inside taken to jail. So going to church with your children in China, it's a real act of heroic valor for Jesus. So they don't have, they don't have too many difficulties identifying who's who. In the days of the Hebrews, some were afraid of persecution and would not gather. What's the motivation? The day is drawing near, the text says. What is that day? It could be many things. It could be the day of judgment. It could be the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. It could be the day of our death. And likely commentators believe that that is the case. The day of our death, because in this letter to the Hebrews in the previous chapter, the writer has said it is established for people to die once and after that, after their death, comes judgment. So, as the day of our death is coming near, oh, I'm young. Oh, really? Don't you have a cousin who died young? Don't you have siblings who died young? Don't you know people who even died in the womb? <laughs> the day of our death 
He's coming near. When I go to funerals, I try to use this illustration of being in a carousel. When you go to the airport and you get into these moving bands that, that move you, and we are in this carousel of life, and there's the end of the moving band, and there's the end of our carousel on earth, and we will die. And sometimes we think, oh, it's not going to be anytime soon. I have 30, 40, 50, 60 years to live. If you do, believe me, they go very fast. I'm 61, and I can retell my life in seconds. Because the, in your brain, the time goes so fast. Memories happen instantly. You can go through an event, even traumatic events in your past, that could have lasted months, years, and you can recall them just in seconds in your memory. Because time flies. Einstein did that with relativity and all of that, but I'm not going to go into that even though I love physics. But the day is drawing near. As that day draws near, and it draws near every second, because time moves linearly forward. We're just moving towards our death. On Sunday mornings, when it's my time to preach, I tell the Lord, thank you for letting me preach. Please remember my prayer that I die after my last sermon. I hope he grants it. I hope he does. I'm not interested in being alive to be useless. And I'm not interested in being alive to be on a yacht and enjoying life and enjoying retirement. Honestly, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I hope I die after the last one. Useful to the last drop. I hope. And I know the day is coming near. And when I preach to you, I don't know if I'm going to make it till next, next Sunday. You're some psycho, sick person thinking about death. Paul said, I die daily. Me too. I've buried seven high school friends. Seven. It's actually nine. We were divided into A and B. Seven were from my class. Two were from the other class. My age. We grew up together. Saying, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, love you, nice to have you as a friend, talking gospel with them, debating theology with some of them. Next time, heart attack, brain issue, dead, buried last Saturday. That happens like that. So the writer says, as you see the day drawing near, make this resolution about your life. Take your outlook and put it in your agenda as a priority. Mark it as important. Put a star on this event. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as it is the bad habit of some, but shaking up one another, stirring up one another to love and to good deeds. There's a premise, the gospel. There's a presumption, Israel's solemn assemblies. There's a purpose, gathering to stir up one another. Let me go into the practical side of things. It's a long conclusion. Why is church attendance so difficult? I've been doing this for, this is going to be my 44th year. Most of you are not even 40 years old. There's very few people in this congregation that are older than me. So I've been doing this for a while. 44 years is a lifetime. Why is church attendance so hard? What's the problem? <laughs> I know what's the problem. I'm not that stupid. 
there's no material reward. Most of us as humans operate on the principle of stick and carrot. We do. We either have a reward or we have a punishment. In Spanish, o no dan palo o no dan pan. Bread or a stick, right? No stick and carrot with church. Honestly, because we work because they pay us, right? Pastor Freddy or whomever handles communication sends a note this morning saying, bring your umbrellas. We have a rain shower watch. And we say, oh, oh, Johnny, how are you? <coughs> Mommy, I'm not feeling well. Okay, then we'll stay. But I bet you Johnny will go to school tomorrow. Maybe not tomorrow because it's President's Day. I get that. But they go to school on Monday. And you go to work on Monday. Right? Head, the headache is not that bad. The feeling of discomfort and oh, I, I, I think I'm coming down with something. It's not that bad on Mondays, right? Why? Because they pay you to work. And if you don't show up, you may lose your work, your job. And if you lose your job, you cannot pay your mortgage, car insurance, fuel, food, and a host of conveniences. I used to have this boss who says, I have these bad habits. I need to eat three times a day and sleep in a comfortable bed. So we cannot support our bad habits of eating and sleeping, right? So we go to work. If God blesses you, he has blessed me with that, and I thank him for that. It's not because I'm smarter, but if he blesses you, you can come to that point in life that you don't need to work because you have enough to survive. But you still work because you have, you're afraid of getting bored. So why do I go to work? Because this is, what am I going to do here all day long? And Maria Luisa is scared to death. I don't want you here all day long doing nothing because I'm going to go crazy. So yes, me too. So let me keep working. But in the meantime, they keep paying. So that's fun. So yes, I go to work. That's the folly, if I said that right, or the stupidity or the nonsense of the seeker-sensitive movement that creates false motivations for people to want to come to church and they end up entertaining goats instead of feeding sheep. I read some interesting comments about our church. How do you call that? Those reviews. I loved one. It said, they are very traditional. It's a very old church. And the guy who spoke didn't make sense of whatever he was saying. I said, boy, if that was me, that was a bad sermon that day. But anyways, yeah. No motivation. Why don't we make something nice and fun and cool? Why don't we put some dancers on the platform? Why don't we make the music cooler and louder? Why don't we paint this black and make some shiny, cool lights and have programs that people have fun and are entertained and have all kinds of ministries and issues that, that make it attractive to come to church? I don't have anything against that, by the way. If they repaint the church and and, and Tony, I've said it last week, I'm going to say it again, and I say it to you too, you guys are doing better and better with the music, and now I visit churches, and I say, now nah, my church has better music. Honestly, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. 
But if the motivation is to motivate people to come to church and fill the chairs and to entertain goats, we're just sending people to hell happy. And that's a scary place to be. Why is it so difficult to come to church? Because church is voluntary. There is little or no accountability because we're even afraid to keep people accountable. I think, I think, that I'm kind of bold with those things and when I don't see a person, I send them a text. But you don't imagine how I struggle crafting the text when there's three, four weeks, I don't see a person. How do I send these so that they don't feel that nobody's checking on them, nobody's keeping taps on them? How do, how do I make this feel that they are not afraid of us being some kind of policing cult? Because we're afraid even to keep tabs on one another. We are afraid of saying, hey, bro, sis, it's been a while, I don't see you. Are you doing okay? Kids are fine, family's okay. Are you struggling? Are you... Are you encouraged? Are you depressed? What's going on? It's been a while I don't see you. We struggle with that. We do not practice or fear or care even about church discipline. We don't. Church discipline for not coming to church. Yes. (laughs) Didn't you agree when you became a member to be consistent with us and to commit and to Bless us with your presence, with your gifts, with your talents, with your exhortation, with whatever it is. So yeah, if your brother sins against you, you're breaking your word. Oh, you guys do that in Cornerstone? Then I'd rather not join. I'm telling you, Pastor Freddie gave you a piece of paper and, and, and it's, it states that. But, but we don't practice it. <laughs> or we try to be very careful with that. Because there's the other extreme and I've seen it. And it's horrendous. This manipulative, fear-mongering, controlling, evil, overpowering ministers who drive people or draw people out of fear. We don't want to do that. We We don't want to draw anyone out of fear. But the challenge is that we don't grasp the value of the church. We don't. Oh, yes, yes, I value the church. No, we don't. Because when somebody calls me and says, hey, you know, the company has a 20% position, salary raise for you. It's a promotion, and it's going to be in uh, Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska. And they need a dark-skinned Latino like you. And I jump on it. Because the Lord is opening a door that has 20% more money in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't even know if they have a church there. Who cares? God is opening a door. Why? Because of more money? Jesus says, be careful. Those who love riches will not enter the kingdom of God. But we don't grasp those things. My children know. They said, we wish you would come here. And one of them said, but we know we would need to move the whole of Cornerstone to this area for you to move. And I told them, yes, you would have to do that. Because so far, God has me here. And I'm, if I don't have any title, if it's only to help Freddie and Dairon and Mario, that's fine with me. That's where he has me. We don't grasp the value of the church. It is the only institution Jesus founded. 
Any books Jesus wrote? None. Any academies he founded? None. Any universities he founded? None. Only thing Jesus founded was the church. I will build my church. But we don't get that. Only institution that is an embassy for heaven. Have you been overseas and come to a consulate or an embassy and pull out your little blue passport and say, let me in. And even though I have this face of who knows what I look like, the guy says, I don't know how you made it, but come. You showed me the passport. Well, that's what we are. We are the passport of heaven on earth. We are the consulate and the embassy of heaven on earth. But we don't grasp it. Because spiritual things are always more difficult. Do you know why? Jesus said it to the disciples when they fell asleep praying with him the night he was betrayed. The flesh is weak. It's weak. Easier to go to a wedding and to a party than to a funeral. Easier to do anything than to read the Bible, pray, listen to a sermon, engage in spiritual things. Why should we commit to church attendance? Beloved, it's a commandment. It is a commandment. You read the text. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Oh, but if you say that, it sounds legalistic. Jesus did it all. We rest on Jesus' complete work. That's your legalism of... Okay. Say, say whatever you want of me. I hope... I pray, I think, that I told you this is the gospel. Jesus did it all. He was a perfect priest and offering and offerer and sacrifice that he established a better covenant. I hope I've said that every week. It's nothing of what you do. Actually, the danger of church attendance, you know what the danger of church attendance is? That there are people sitting in churches saying, oh, I'm going to heaven because I'm a church-going person, and you're going to hell because you haven't closed with Christ has nothing to do with going to church. has everything to do with what Jesus did, and he did it all, and all to him I owe. But it's a commandment. And if it sounds legalistic to you, okay, I'm not going to change the text to sound hyper-grace. I don't care how I sound. It's a commandment. It's a beneficial habit. Why should we go to church? It is beneficial to go to church. The principle of Sabbath rest. Do you want to know when depression hits the hardest? Between Sunday afternoon and Monday morning. I have to go back to work. I'll go back to all those emails. My boss calling me from 6 a.m. And he's a great guy. He's a great boss. Love him. Sabbath rest. We need to take a break. We need to disconnect. We need to rest and worship and be reminded of eternal realities. When you die, this note will be sent because you have read them. From HR, we regret to inform that Edwin Gonzalez passed. We, we are thankful 
for the contributions Edwin did to Komatsu. And pachanga, bingo, next job. It's going to happen to you too. It's going to happen to me. Whatever we do, whatever we are, it's going to disappear. Please raise your hand if you know the name of your great-great-grandmother. Do you think your name is going to be remembered? I don't have any thought that Ethan's and Jacob's grandchildren will remember that their great-grandfather was this dark Dominican Latino who begot their parents and who worked for Komatsu and used to be a preacher. I don't have the, not even an inkling that they will remember that. It will all be gone. Totally gone. All your dreams, all your achievements, all your accolades, all your titles, all your money, all your degrees, all whatever it is you live for, gone. Safe. Treasures in heaven where thieves do not steal, where rust do not eat away, except the treasure of Christ. You know what we do on Sundays? We rest to remember the only thing that counts. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha complaining that she was not working with her. And Jesus said, Martha, leave her alone. She chose the good part. It will not be taken away from her. That's the benefit of coming to church. It's a means of grace. God will speak to us through his word when we gather. Primarily through the preaching. But also through the singing of songs and psalms and spiritual songs of worship. And also through the one another and through the stirring up of one another to love and do good deeds. It is a means of grace. It is a means of sanctification. It is teaching, exhortation, encouragement, rebuke, reprimand, instruction, whatever the case it is. Those one anotherisms that Troy Mullins used to put a sign, I don't know if it's still out there, all the one anothers of the Bible, that's why it's beneficial to gather on Sundays and to have the good habit of gathering ourselves together. And I love this one. It is an avenue of service. When you gather with the saints, that's how you expand and open your avenue to service. We have three pastors. Bob and Susan, Wade and Debbie, ourselves, Louise and Deborah are in St. Augustine today. They are the only people who have more than 30 years in this church, to my knowledge right now, that I'm looking at. And we've seen pastors come and go. And who would have told us 30 years ago that Freddie, the young man who came in 2008 with his young wife in his early 20s, of Dydon, the bearded guy who came three years ago, or Mario, the guy who came from Cuba who could not even speak English when he came, would be our pastors. Do you know why they are our pastors? Because they were always there. <laughs> and if I need a pastor, who am I going to call? The guy who's an expert? who stays out there talking about all the theology he knows, but you can barely see him. Or the lady who knows everything, but you can barely see her. No, I'll call, I'll call the guys who are there. That's the way it works. The same goes with deacons. The same goes with any service. For 48 people out of 58, I think it was the number Freddie gave, of those of you who serve, who are the ones who serve, the ones we rely on? 
the ones we see. It's an avenue for expanded usefulness. And beloved, this is not legalism. Jesus died for his church. Jesus lives for his church. That's the encouragement Paul gives to husbands. He lives to nourish, perfect, sanctify, care for his church. And I finish with the hymn we used to sing when we had the hymnal. I don't know if, if we have sung it with Tony. It's a poem by Timothy Dwight. And it's that old hymn that goes, I love your kingdom, God. And that's going to be my end. I love your church, O Lord. Her saints before you stand, dear as the apple of your eye and graven on your hand. Beyond my highest joy, what a challenging line. Beyond my highest joys, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. I love your church, O oh God, the people you have called. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. Father, bless your word and use it according to your purposes, for your glory, for the good of your people, for our sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.